0: Good morning, everyone. I guess we'll get started. And uh, a very happy Easter. This is the best day of all the days. Uh, I know in our culture, Christmas is the big deal. Christmas is a big deal, but this is the weekend that it's all about. So what we're going to do today is very similar to Good Friday. Most of you were there on Good Friday as well. And we kind of broke this. We did longer readings broken up by very brief messages by myself. And we're going to do that again today. And what I'd like us to do is for us to put ourselves in the sandals of those people who were there. uh, Like these women, Mary and Joanna and Salome. Like the men, uh, John and Peter, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, uh, Nicodemus. These people who were the first eyewitnesses. And I want us to sort of feel what they're feeling. And I have a corny sort of setup for this. But we'll start with Friday. And on Friday, they would be feeling the gloom. That's our first. Friday is the gloom. And it's important for us to feel some of that gloom as well. It's important for us to feel uh, the darkness and uh, the sacrifice and the pain of that day. It's important that we don't rush right to resurrection. It's important that we stay with the crucifixion, which we did on Friday. Um, And it was a really nice service, thanks to all of your participations. And we start... In the gloom of Friday. But then Saturday comes. And Friday, if you don't know, is the last day of the week for them. Saturday was the Sabbath. It was the day of rest. And on the cross, Jesus says, it's finished. Very much like God says it's finished on the sixth day of creation. He looks over it all and says it's very good. And then on the last day, he rests. But that's not the end of the story, obviously, in in creation. After the seventh day, that's when all of the rest of life happens. And that's true for this kind of recreation too. And so if Friday is the gloom, Saturday is the womb. Because even though it's darkness, even though it's waiting, even though it's rest and silence, out of that darkness and out of that quiet will come new life. Will come a beautiful new way to be alive. So Saturday, even though it's cold and dark, uh, Jesus is in the tomb uh it's the womb that is where life is gestating and and new life is about to come out of that darkness and that brings us to sunday and we're going to break sunday into three parts because the the gospel writers break it into three parts there's three scenes for for sunday so we go from the gloom of friday to the womb of saturday and then the first scene on sunday is the tomb and this will be our first reading as well so here's John 20, verses 1 to 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. And by the way, throughout the book of John, you, there's always stories about the, the disciple that Jesus loved. And uh, that disciple will pop up a few times in these last two chapters of John. And you know who the disciple that Jesus loved is? It's John himself. Yeah, it's John who wrote the book. He never refers to himself as John. He always says, that other disciple, you know, the one that Jesus loved. Jesus' best friend, which is like the best humble brag in the history of humble brags. I love that. But this is John, the author, saying that him and Peter went to the tomb. Um, Mary Magdalene comes up to these two men uh, and says, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I don't mean to brag, but I'm a little faster than Peter. Um, this disciple, John, bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, "Rabbi!" which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that that he had said these things to her. And according to Luke, they didn't believe her, those disciples. But what a beautiful scene, hey? I love that, both in this chapter and in the next chapter, which we'll read later, in both those chapters, people don't recognize it's Jesus until he calls them by name. And with that sort of, that, the intimacy of knowing their name, the intimacy of knowing who they are deeply, that's what opens their eyes to realize that it's actually Jesus. Here, it, it's, that's Mary. She, she doesn't realize it's him. She thinks it's the gardener until he calls her by name. And that's a beautiful portrait of the intimacy of the resurrection. That Jesus doesn't just come for the whole world and it's some distant abstract thing. He comes and he calls us by name. And I love the power and the beauty of that. I also love how he says, I'm returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. That the resurrection is the thing that bridges the gap between us and our father, our God who is Jesus and who draws us near to him as life itself. He doesn't just say, I'm going to my Father, who is my God. He says to Mary, uh, this woman with a sinful past, says, it's your Father and your God as well. So a real beautiful portrait of the resurrection, but I want us to catch the sense of confusion and joy and chaos that, that came with that moment as well. And I'm going to be reflecting on that a little bit later. Continuing on in John 20, Friday is the gloom. Saturday is the womb. And then Sunday, the first of the three scenes was the tomb. But now we're heading into the room. This is uh, starting at verse 19 and uh, going to 29. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked out of fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now, Thomas, called Didymus, who was one of the twelve disciples, was not one of the disciples when Jesus came. He wasn't there with them. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. So the room is an important scene in the resurrection as well. It puts us really in the mindset of the disciples. There's a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty. The doors are locked because they're not sure what's going to happen. And Jesus pops up in the middle of them, which he does it twice. And I'm sure that was frightening. (laughs) Jesus, couldn't you knock? But To prove that this is the miracle-working Jesus, he just shows up there. And I I have been like Thomas in so many ways where I want some kind of certainty, some kind of proof. I want want a strong foundation before I can believe. And these men are very lucky, these men and women. They got to see his nail-pierced hands and feet and uh the side where he the sword went or the spear went in, they got to see and feel and, and without a shadow of a doubt know that this was Jesus. We don't have that. And we won't have that. But Jesus promises that those of us who believe without having that proof are especially blessed. And so that's you and I. The room is an important step of confirmation that he is who he said he was. Uh, and we can believe that without certainty, uh, that's what faith is. Is, is not having proof, but believing it and submitting to it anyway. Um, it's the peace and the power and the praise that comes with confirmation that the story of Jesus is true. And when I say true, I don't just mean historically true, although it is that. I mean true in the sense of it is real, and it, it it's full, and it is right. It is it is what completes life. Um, Jesus, The story of Jesus' resurrection is true in every sense. And you get that in the picture of the the disciples in the room. So from gloom to womb to tomb to room, there's only one more super cheesy rhyming word for you. And we'll we'll talk about that. I'm going to wrap off these, uh, tie off these rhyming words. We'll finish with the last scene of the resurrection. And then that'll be it. I'll send you off to eat chocolate and, uh, ham. I don't know what people eat at Easter. Um, (laughs) chocolate all day for, for us. um, but we went from Friday, the gloom of Friday, to the womb, the dark, and the rest, and the waiting for new life, that was Saturday, and now we're here on Sunday, and the first scene is the tomb, uh, where it's sort of chaotic, but there's a lot of joy, um, there's a lot of confusion um, as life steps out of death, and then we went to the room where belief was solidified, where, pow- uh, where Peace and and praise uh, were experienced powerfully. And then we're going to move to the third scene. Anybody want to guess what the rhyming word is? By the way, Zoe thought the loom, which is cute, but no, not the loom. Lisa?
1: I was going to say the zoom. The (laughs) zoom. Back to to, uh, to heaven.
0: (laughs) I like that. You know what? I'm gonna add that. That's we that's can, the next one.
1: We can zoom to heaven.
0: And I thought maybe because we're Zoom churching, Zoom is the church because we have to do church on Zoom. That's not what I was thinking of, but that's that's really good, Lisa. You should have written my okay, sermon for Bloom. me. What's that, Trish? Bloom. Trish. Trish
1: Bloom.
0: Trish, are you looking at my notes right now, Trish?
1: <laughs> no, I'm just guessing the next one. I thought Zoom first.
0: Well, I'm gonna tell you, Trish. You nailed it. <laughs> It's the bloom. That's right. We read on Good Friday a portion of James 12 that talks about seeds being planted in the ground. And uh, so I'm just going to reread that real quick. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. That's... Jesus predicting his death, that he would be buried in the ground like a seed. But when he was buried in the ground, that would lead to life abundant. That would lead to to many lives uh, rising up from the dead. And that just, that isn't, that's us, but it's not just when we die, we are resurrected one day. That's new life now that blooms out of the, the blood-soaked soil of the empty tomb. Um, so, The bloom is the growth uh, for us personally and for the church communally that happens because of the resurrection. So I'm going to read all four of the gospel stories of the bloom. They're not very long, so don't be frightened. Um, But I'm going to read them all. They all have a slightly different take on what life looks like in the bloom of Jesus' resurrection. So we'll start with Luke. If you want to turn with me to Luke 24, and this is Luke 24, 44 to 53. Jesus said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written, that Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. I'm going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and zoomed, as Lisa would say, uh, was taken up into heaven. Then they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. So that's the bloom, according to Luke. Repentance and forgiveness. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. Uh, You're to wait until he ascends. But once he does, you are unleashed on the world around you. Now we'll go to Mark, the last chapter of Mark, which is chapter 16. Mark 16, starting at verse 15. Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will get well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. So according to Mark, part of the bloom is that God's people will do powerful acts that that could only be confirmations of, of the power of the Holy Spirit, the, the power of Jesus, including there's the really weird ones, speaking in new tongues, handling snakes, drinking poison. Those are very specific things that kind of serve as prophecies that would be fil- fulfilled in the book of Acts. Uh, when the Holy Spirit comes, they all speak in new tongues. Um, Paul on the sh- on the island, the, after he's shipwrecked, handles a snake that bites him, but he just throws him to the fire and doesn't die. And that whole island is like, wow, he's a god. And Paul says, no, I'm not a god. Jesus is the god, and they all believe in him. So lots of people think that this was added retroactively to point to things that would come. But either way, the truth is that part of the bloom is that he fills his followers with the power to do great things. Jesus even said, you will do greater things than I, which is simply not true, Jesus, but also is totally true. He does empower his people to do amazing things. And the most famous Bloom passage is the Great Commission found at the end of Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 16, I think. Yeah. Then the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted, even still they, they doubt and Then Jesus said to them and came to them and said, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There's a reason that one's a little bit more familiar and a little bit more famous than the one in Mark. Um, it 's a little more powerful and he, part of the the bloom is that we 're to go not just to people like us. this invitation isn 't just for people like us this invitation is for the whole world fulfilling the covenant of abraham that we 've been talking about how we 're blessed to bless all the nations uh, and that 's that 's very much true for for our role Our role is to go make disciples in all the nations baptizing. In the name of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, and it ends with a word of comfort. And remember, these are still uh, these are still men who are very afraid, very doubtful. And Jesus says to them, surely I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. Uh, right to the end. So that's the bloom. The bloom is taking the resurrection, uh, f- letting it fill us up so we can bloom, and then taking it to our, our community, our world, uh, around us, so that it can bloom as well. Um, every seed that we plant in the kingdom blossoms and, and grows because of Jesus. So that's the bloom. Um, but there's one more quick story I want to read. It's it's maybe my favorite post-resurrection story in the Gospels, and there's there's a bunch of them. I didn't talk about the road to Emmaus in Luke. You can read that on your own time. It's a good one, too. But my favorite Bloom story is the one at the very end of the Gospel of John. And I've talked about this story a lot. Um, it means a lot to me personally. I see a lot of myself in Peter in this chapter. Um, and I hope you do, too. But in a, in a lot of ways, chapter 21 of John really wraps up the Bloom that we live in really beautifully. Um, actually, I'm wondering, would anybody else like to read it? I'm kind of tired of hearing my own voice. Is there somebody who'd like to read all of John 21? Sharon, would you mind? Just all of John 21. Old chapter? Yes, please.
1: Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Cateau, When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of a large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals. There were there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, "Bring some of your fish you have just caught." Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, a hundred and fifty-three. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, "Come and have breakfast." None of the disciples dared ask him, "Who are you?" They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went there, went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that his disciples would not die, but Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written.
0: Thank you so much, Sharon. Beautiful job.
1: You're
0: welcome. Um, chapter twenty-one is, in a lot of ways, the tying of loose ends of things that came before. Most famously, this is the redemption of Peter after Peter had denied Jesus three times. Now Jesus reinstates Peter three times, and remember, three times means in scripture means total, final, absolute. So when Peter denied Jesus three times, that means he has completely abandoned Jesus and wants nothing to do with him. But of course, that's just a mistake based on fear. And so Jesus knows that, forgives him for that, and gives Peter the chance to three times redeem himself, which means he's totally, fully, completely redeemed. And so that Peter would then go on to be, along with Paul and James, the three pillars of the, the first church. And so, this story is beautiful for what it means for Peter, but there's all kinds of loose ends being tied here. You probably remember when Jesus first called uh, Peter and uh, his brother Andrew, he was uh, fishing in the, the Sea of Galilee along with two other brothers, James and John. And the most famous thing that Jesus says to Peter in that first, when he first calls Peter, is Follow me, and I will make you. A fisher of men. of men. Follow me, and I will make you a fisher of men. And then Jesus cements that promise by telling Peter, "Cast your." Or before he says that, actually, he tells Peter to to cast his nets on the right side of the boat, and he brings in a haul of fish that he can't, the net can't even handle. And so this story is—it's intended to call to mind that story. It's intended to. Everything comes full circle. At this point in the story, the disciples are just kind of aimless. They're they're waiting for they don't know what, um, and so they default back to what they've always done. They default back to, hey, I don't know what we're doing here. I don't know what Jesus has planned for us. Let's just do the thing we've always done. Let's go fishing, and so the boys go fishing. Uh, they go back to the life they've always known, and it's while they're doing that 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 they have this in- encounter with Jesus again, uh, and it's a Reminder for Peter that I will make you a fisher of men. More fish than you can handle, even, Peter. And when Peter, when that happens to Peter, I love Peter's response. He's just unashamed, like, like David dancing half naked for the Lord in 2 Samuel. Peter dives in with his clothes on and swims to shore, not able to contain his joy that, that Jesus has come back uh, and is, is reinstating him. So the story of Peter comes full circle. Again, we've got John humble bragging that he's the the disciple that Jesus loves. And there's some confusion about what's going to happen, the fate of these disciples. We do know that Peter was crucified like Jesus, but legend has it that he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel that he was fit to die the same way as his savior. Um, And so that Jesus makes mention of that. Someone will take you by the hand and lead you where you don't want to go. And that's where the rumor spreads that John will not die. But the reason why I think chapter twenty one is the best bloom chapter, the best bloom story, is because it covers a lot of how we are to bloom in the light of the resurrection. Uh, the disciples, as I mentioned, they go back to living their regular life. and I think sometimes we think that because we're not um, because we're not missionaries somewhere, that we're not doing big, incredible things, that somehow the power of God is diminished in us. But that's not true at all. These disciples, they would go on to do amazing things, but before they do that, they go back to doing regular things because they're regular people like you and me. And not everybody is called to stand up in Jerusalem and give a speech that draws 3,000 people to Jesus. Not everyone's called to do that. Some people are called just to be among those 3,000 who follow faithfully. Regular people like you and me. And so I love the the idea that they go back to living their regular life. There is honor in that, in in working and, and being who you are. I also love that they go and catch fish by the power of Jesus's guidance. And that's as Peter was called to be a fisher of people, so are we called to be fishers of people. We're called to send our, set out our net, um, the net of love and good works, and draw people into Him. Catch fish by the power of Christ's guidance. That's part of our. Role as blooming Christians. I mentioned Peter's unashamed desire to be with Jesus. That should be a part of our blooming faith as well. Not caring who's around or what it looks like, uh, not caring what it does to our reputation, not caring what it does to our clothes, uh, our possessions. But just going to be with Jesus. That's a part of a blooming life. We talk a lot about the Last Supper at Easter time. It's obviously crucial, super important. We don't talk enough about the first breakfast, the last supper and the first breakfast. And I love that Jesus gets together with his disciples on the shore and they have breakfast together. It's actually not the first breakfast. The Gospel of Luke says that when Jesus first appeared to the disciples, he says, I'm hungry. So they give him some fish to eat. But I like this scene. It's so intimate. It's Jesus and like six of his best friends sharing a meal together. And that is a massive, massive part of what it means to live a blooming Christian life, to gather around with our brothers and sisters, with Jesus at the center, and to share a meal together. And that that's what communion is. That's what Andrew had us do just half an hour ago or whatever. Gather with our friends, gather with our brothers and sisters, and share a meal centered around Jesus. Jesus talks to them about redemption and forgiveness, both are crucial aspects of a blooming life. He gives them a job. He redeems Peter, but not just, Peter, you're back with me, now go back to fishing. Um, he's got something special for, for Peter. And although it's true that we we go about living our lives as, as regular people, we do have an, an extraordinary and extraordinary role to play We're given the task of feeding sheep and lambs as well. For some of us, that may mean discipling. And for some of us, that may mean literally feeding little lambs and little sheep who cannot feed themselves, clothing them, giving them water and safety and compassion. We're given the job of feeding sheep and lambs as well as catching fish. And finally, the hardest part of this is when Jesus has to lay out for Peter the kind of death that he'll have, the kind of sacrifice he'll have to make to glorify Jesus. And there's an element of that for us as well. That part of what it means to live in the bloom of the resurrection is to take up our cross as well, to make sacrifices for the glory of God. We probably won't be martyred, but we are certainly called to take up our cross and follow him, which is exactly what he tells Peter that Peter needs to do. And so those are all aspects of what it means to bloom in the light of the resurrection. Uh, a lot of ideas, and, and life looks different for each of us, but we're called to bloom. As with the story of Easter, our own faith journey often mirrors this process, where what seems like gloom, the, the gloom of our life before Jesus, is actually just the womb, a dark place where we can be reborn into new life. Our first encounter with Jesus uh, for, for some of us, that was many years ago, our first encounter with Jesus. But if you can remember, it probably felt similar to the encounters at the tomb. There was probably some confusion. There's probably a little bit of fear involved with what is this new life in Jesus. But there's also joy and exhilaration at this resurrected new life that we've discovered. So we move from gloom to womb to tomb and and all the chaos of that tomb encounter uh, was probably there in your first encounter with Jesus as well. But we move from the tomb to the room, and we need the room encounters as well. That's where our faith is solidified by by evidence of what we can see and feel and, and know about Jesus. Um, perhaps after the tomb, we start to get bored, or we start to get doubtful, or we start to fear what this life is going to look like. And so these room encounters are so important especially for those of us who've never seen him, but still put our trust in his nail-pierced hands. We grow in trust and worship in him who is true, in he who is true. And truth was an important, that's we talked about on Good Friday, the question that Pilate asked, what is truth? Truth is Jesus Christ, and true not just that this actually factually happened. if, If that's all I mean by truth, just that Jesus really did rise from the dead, that's not enough. It has to be truth in the sense that it soaks into us and it transforms us. And so from the womb, to the tomb, to the room, we are now prepared to zoom. Sorry, I mean bloom. We are called to bloom. We are called to catch fish and make disciples. We are called to commune together, have meals in his name. We're called to run towards him, to live in the power of his spirit. We're called to experience forgiveness and redemption for ourselves, and proclaim forgiveness and redemption for others. We're called to serve and follow our resurrected king with a life of sacrifice. That's how you know you are blooming when fruit grows out of you. Fruit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I'll add humility. Bible study you guys talked about. Empathy. You are not blooming in Christ until you have empathy. If you have no empathy, you are not blooming. If you have no humility, you're not fully blooming. All of these things are true. If you don't have sacrifice, sacrificial love, then you're not blooming. And that's how you know you are blooming. The fruit of that blooming is evident to yourself and to all. And so Easter is a time to recognize the gloom. That's what Good Friday is for. As well as the womb as we sit and wait for redemption and victory. It's a time where we meet Jesus outside the empty tomb, inside the bustling, miraculous room, together with our our brothers and sisters. And it's where we receive all that we need to bloom in his mustard seed kingdom. Easter is for the cross, but it's also for life-defeating death. Both uh, the cross and the empty tomb allow us to thrive fruitfully for our King, He has risen. He has risen indeed. Let's pray. Jesus, as we move uh, from the gloom of Good Friday, even though we know it's a beautiful day full of sacrifice and and victory, that victory is not complete until we are birthed out of the womb into resurrected life. We thank you for the empty tomb. We thank you for the the room full of disciples whose whose doubts are are washed away and whose faiths are solidified we pray the same for ourselves and we thank you uh, that we can bloom in you that we can thrive and blossom be fruitful and multiply catching fish um, feeding sheep and lambs for your glory I thank you for each of these blooming Christians I thank you for uh, the life that they all live and the life uh, the vibrant life of this church community we pray that What we do brings honor to you and glory to you. But thank you, Jesus, for the victory that we have in light of your empty tomb. um, We we praise you and thank you for this resurrected life that we share. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. So whether you're in the gloom or the womb or the tomb or the room, (laughs) I don't know where you are. Probably in a lot of places at a lot of different times. but Wherever you are, you are called to bloom uh, in light of the resurrection. And he will help you to do so. So thanks again. Let's try this one more time. Go ahead and unmute. He is risen.
1: He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. risen.
0: (laughs) Thanks, you guys. Happy Easter.
1: Happy Easter. Happy Easter.
0: And so Easter is a time to recognize the gloom as well as the womb as we sit and wait for redemption and victory. It's a time where we meet Jesus outside the empty tomb, inside the bustling miraculous room together with our our brothers and sisters, and it's where we receive all that we need to bloom in his mustard seed kingdom. Both uh, the cross and the empty tomb allow us to thrive fruitfully for our king. He has risen. He has risen indeed. I I really was going to throw in groom because we're the the bride of Christ, but you can only push cheesy things like that so far. I think you've met the limit. (laughs) I maxed out. Fantastic.